welcome, welcome to today's uh, Media World's Masterclass, um, which focuses on is the final um, session as part of the series that we've been doing linked with countdown to market and effectiveness. Feels like a long time ago, actually, that we started with segmentation, target, and positioning piece. Um, I think that's the one you were on, Becca, actually. Um, yeah. yeah, so again, like we started there, we then moved through the different stages around long versus short, around budget, around like creative proposition. And that's led us nicely into uh, this session, which is going to focus on marketing according to the size of your brand and the share uh, that you've got of any given market. Um, I'll start with introductions. So my name is David Norris. I'm the Group Operations Director here at MediaWorks, and I'll be hosting today's masterclass as I've hosted the rest of this series so far. Um, Becca, could we come to you next, please? Hello, I am Head of Strategic Planning. So uh, me and my team look after a lot of kind of insight, research, and kind of recommendations for clients that come off the back of that. Fantastic. Thank you, Becca. Jill? Hi, I'm Jill. I'm managing partner here at MediaWorks um, and look after the leads office. Fantastic. And then last but definitely not least, um, Andrew. Hi, everybody. I'm, uh, I'm Andy. I'm the Chief Strategy Officer here at MediaWorks. Cool. So um, you've seen some of our faces before on these uh, as part of this series and the sessions that we've been doing. But today, I say we're really going to focus on marketing according to your brand size and share. I think we all know that the most effective way for a company to increase its market share is to create an integrated strategy for marketing and branding. However, we all know as well that, look, we don't live in this utopian world and we don't have the utopian view of business and marketing. So we don't all start with an equal share or even sometimes an equal opportunity to, to dominate, get that market share of brand equity. So we're going to discuss today some of the strategies and tactics for new entrants, challenger brands, brands in decline or market leading brands like because we know they all differ and the effectiveness of their efforts can be impacted by market dynamics, things like competitor activity and share of voice. So we're going to like talk around a whole range of topics. I'm going to take some notes as I go through to help summarize that at the end. I'm going to try and keep the conversation flowing. But what I would say is if anybody's got any questions as we go through the session today, then please do just um, type them in and I'll try and review those as we go and pick a point where we can address that in the most appropriate manner. So, um, I'm going to start with the first question. I'm going to get heads up, Jill. It's coming towards you, so this does give me time. So, as we know, this is our final masterclass of this five-part series on marketing effectiveness. So, before we dive into the importance of your company and brand um, position and proposition in the marketplace, could we spend a couple of minutes to give an overview and context around really where this subject fits with our previous sessions? And I guess, ultimately, why are we doing a session on this particular topic? Okay, so um, I'll, I, we thought it's probably best to just give a bit of a rundown, really, of, of what we've covered off today, and then we can understand um, you know, how today's topic fits into that. So um, I'll try and keep this short because we've covered a lot. So if we go back quite a few weeks, we had um, number five on our list where we focused on segmentation and targeting. So in that, we looked at uh, methodologies, also the importance of um, building target audience segments to optimise your targeting and, and making sure that your communications are really personalised. So probably sometimes this is overlooked, um, but you know, really the importance of taking a lot of data, a lot of market research, um, and then focusing in on those segments that are ultimately going to, to convert. 
Um, we then had number four on our list. So um, we discussed the long and the short of it in that. So this was um, kind of considerations around how how much resource and how much budget you should be investing in long-term versus, um, so sort of long-term brand building versus short-term activation. Um, we did talk a lot about the 60-40 split, but also we were, you know, we were mindful in that about, um, you know, kind of different market considerations, different sort of internal variables that, that different businesses need to consider. Um, we then moved into number three on our list. So that was all about maximizing budgets um, in line with the objectives that you have and, um, you know, making sure that you, you set that at the beginning in line with your goals, making sure that you, you track that on an ongoing basis. Um, and then finally, um, this was last week, that was number two on our list. Um, we talked a lot about the creative execution and, and, and not forgetting the importance of that and making sure that your marketing is really effective. Um, and also about sort of um, you know, differentiation and, and really sort of cementing your, your, your brand in the minds of the customers that you're going after. Um, which takes us to today's topic, where we're really going to focus in on brand position, which is really good, a good build on last week's topic. Oh, you've gone on mute, David. Sorry, it's a barking dog that I'm dealing with. Um, yeah, so I think that was really useful, Jill. I think it was fantastic to, to sort of take us through that in terms of giving us context around what we have focused on. I think like when we focused on market effectiveness as, a, as an agency when we've delivered these masterclasses, what we try to do every time is give people practical, actionable sort of tips and guidance that they can take away and or, or at least sort of cause a moment for reflection. Because again, I think we've been quite real in the fact that like everyone doesn't start from parity, like not everybody's in the position here, you know, and there has to be some sort of competition. And what are your points of difference? I have to say that, like the ones that stand out to me, I have to say with sort of segmentation uh, session that we did right up front around make sure you understand that audience, the whole process. And then last week, I thought it was a brilliant session on, on the creative element and how you can use creativity as a differential and how that then linked with long and short and budget requirements, et cetera. I thought that was really interesting. So Andy, I'm going to come to you then and dive into today's topic around like then with all of that context, with all of that back, back, backdrop that we've just identified, why should a company's brand size impact their marketing strategy? Um, I think it's kind of like, there's why should it and like, and how should it, if that makes sense, David, in terms of like why it should is because as you said there, like, um, Nobody, unless you make a new category and you're kind of starting from a fresh, like you, you, you've always got to kind of try and go into a category. If you're a new brand, let's just say going into a category, then there's like a lot of things that you need to consider in terms of, I suppose your competition is the biggest one. Like what are you competing against and how do you start to try and like gain some form of share of the category or how do you establish yourself if you're in, if you're a new, um, if you're a new brand entering? A category. I would, I'm going to say category loads. It's going to be the thing that I get sick of saying today. But if you're entering, entering a new category, then you have to kind of consider who's already there, how competitive it is, how can you best start to build kind of market share? Because you you might make an assumption, which could be wrong, but you might be entering a category with smaller budgets and people who already exist in the category. Therefore, you've got to think about how can you start to find we'll talk about a little bit later, like kind of subcategories or unique points of difference, which allows you to start stealing the march, I suppose, or gaining some form of market share. I think with that comes kind of like 
budget considerations. If you are a smaller brand and it might be that you have smaller budgets and people who are market leaders in a category, which means you're probably going to have to look at your budget allocation in a, in a very specific way. I think the if you're a big brand, it kind of works the other way where you've got to look for disruptors in the category. You've got to look for people who are arguably trying tactics in a like to try and bring new people in the category in a way that you haven't considered. I think you know that when you're at the top of the game, we talk about this in SEO, it's a little bit differently, but like there's being number one, and there's almost retaining that position, which means you need to cover all bases and always almost to protect your position in the category. So I think a lot of it depends on like where you are as a business, David, and how big you are as a brand as to what levers you need to pull or what you need to be aware of, like budget, reputation, competition. Um, and all of these things are going to help you try and grow your share of a category because nine times out of ten there's somebody in it. Like you're not going into this whole new space where nobody's ever went before. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like how do you achieve cut through through that? And like I know Becca when we sort of talked on this previously in, in previous mm-hmm. sessions, it's like there's also big drivers behind this, isn't there as well? Around like why you would why you would do it and, and what the motivation is around sort of owning a market or a category as, mm-hmm. as Andrew has mentioned. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. And I think, um, you know, like you said at the beginning, David, unfortunately, we're not all starting from the same place, right? It is an an equal start line. And one of the ways that we can make sure we've got a head start is building that brand. And, you know, it's why companies build brands. And it's about that, you know, getting that advantage, but then also retaining that advantage. And, you know, in future, you've got that advantage. So it's, um, I guess, a bit like um, Andy was saying, it's about, yeah, how do you stay where you are? But how do you also make sure you kind of keep that and safeguard that position for future and really that is about building um you know building that brand and getting that um excess share of voice um and I think, uh, you know, one of the ways that we really, you know, look at this, and I think it's where, you know, marketers have measured it for, you know, years and years and years, is about how do we look at the investment that we're putting into our marketing versus the share of market that we get out of it. And um, really the kind of traditional way that a lot of brands would be looking at this would be measuring that excess share of voice. And I think um, it can seem like a really difficult concept when you look at all of the graphs and things, but it's actually super super, super, super simple to get your head around. It is literally about how much do you put in, which is your um, share of voice. So that's, you know, generally about your marketing spend um, and your advertising spend. And then how do you measure what you get out of the other side, which is your share of market. And really what you're looking for is the, you know, if you want a, you know, flat level, you're looking at, say you put in 10% of the advertising spend in the category, you get out 10% of that marketing share. But really what you want to be doing is putting in 10% of that spend and getting 15% of the marketing share out of it. That means that what you're doing is effective and works and, you know, something that you should carry on doing it. And it is kind of the golden or the million dollar question to go, right, well, how do I do that? How do I put, you know, 10% in and get 15% out? And really, um, plug for all of our past podcasts here, um, it's all about marketing effectiveness. It's about understanding what channels are I'm on, what audience am I targeting? How do I make really good creative? And all of that is going to enable you to be getting that excess share of voice. So I think that's um, 
you know, something that we're, you know, we're always thinking about, always looking at, making sure that we're measuring it. And it's something that, you know, the industry has been measuring for years and years and years. Um, I think, you know, like a lot of marketing principles, it's something that you kind of have to use as a rule of thumb. There is no, um, you know, there is no science, if you will, to say that this is the exact same for every single category, every single range of brands, you know, it is that kind of starting point that you're measuring. Um, you know, for example, some, you know, um, some marketing spend in things like FMCG, um, you know, uh, might be more effective. So it's always thinking about what are the different um, contexts in your category, but starting from that kind of um, starting point, a bit like we talked around the kind of 60-40 rule, it's your kind of starting point and then thinking about um, what can we measure. Otherwise, marketing would be really simple, right? If it was all the same across every single category, across every single brand, then none of us would have jobs. Yes. So- <laughs> Exactly. And think about the other kind of measurement you can apply to it. So we talked a bit about econometric modeling and thinking about that market marketing mix modeling and thinking about um, all the different ways that, um, you know, we can measure the profitability of our marketing activity. So really it is that kind of mix of different ways, but access share of voice can be a really good guide to kind of help you understand are my marketing efforts effective or not. Yeah. I think as well, like when I, when I think about this often, it's like, Obviously, from a performance marketing background, it's like I think of it from a performance marketing perspective, and it's like it's like brand traffic in some ways is is usually not always, but usually the cheapest traffic you can ever drive. Right? We we have like a view on that. And then you break your categories down into like brand, brand plus, then generics. So, but what I would say is that I would always recommend people to use the tools that are available within platform mm-hmm. as well to look at like what proportion of your sales come from that? Does that change over time? Like if you do a big, for example, a brand piece, do you, are you able to rely more on brand? Um, therefore, ultimately, if you had, say, 10 grand a month to spend, it'd be like you would accept, expect your £10,000 worth of investment. You'd get low CPCs, potentially mm-hmm. more traffic because it's cheaper traffic. And it's I think it's things like this that, like, yeah, the theoretical models about sort of excess share of voice are, mm-hmm. are really important, but I think, like, and unfortunately, it's never as straightforward as just saying, there's a tool out there that will tell you all of the answers yes. that you've got. But I do think it's like, it's like you can almost follow the breadcrumbs along as well a bit around, mm-hmm. you know, I'm even thinking keyword tools that we can use, keyword analysis, looking at yeah. platform around impression share, um, impression share, like auction insight reports around other competitors entering your space and what are they doing and what yeah. are they doing. And we talked about this previously in the long and short about, like, reverse engineering some of this as well you know so looking at right take a step back once we've got the data is like what did your competitors to do do in entering that marketplace like what did they uh, have, have they sort of put out there in terms of not just channel yeah. strategies but creative approaches around sort of you know how aggressive have they been which words have they gone after which categories which are you know i think there's a whole a whole host of things that you can look at within that yeah, it's quite a good way, I think, of benchmarking what you're up against as well, like just the current state of play. So, yeah. you know, like we, we did one for a, a soft drinks and we could clearly say see there was like a, a dominant brand within the market. Mm. Actually, we could see who was also second to yeah. that. And then we had a yeah. deep look at what they were doing to kind of form some some tactics to, to go against them. Mm. <clears throat> 
And I think we always have this thing, don't we? I don't know where this comes from. We always talk about like expressions like market dominance. And you know what? Sometimes it's all right to be second in your market. Yeah. Like, you know, in some pretty big markets, I'd take being mm-hmm. second. You know, it's like, um, so I think it's like, there's a reason that Pepsi is still a successful business, right? It's yeah. like, you know, you sit there going, it sort of stacks up. So it, I think like we've got to understand what we're trying to achieve and, and where mm-hmm. we're trying to position and the steps that we can take to sort of move up and move up the ladders and, and what what sort of space we're trying to occupy in a consumer's mind. Mm-hmm. So I guess I love and talk again, I've just done it there, straight, straight in the big brand world. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to, to come to you, Becca, if you don't mm-hmm. mind, on, on on like what are some effective approaches for small brands to compete with larger ones in a marketplace? Because I'm sure that, that you know people listening in. Like we're all not a massive multinational yeah. businesses. Like, so what what is it that we can do to sort of achieve that cut through? Yeah, I think um, firstly, I'd say if you're a smaller brand, you have to be thinking and behaving differently. Ultimately, you do not have the same budgets as that category leader. Um, would be nice, but you don't. And therefore, if you were just going to do the same, but you were going to you're going to do the same but be behind. So if you want to start, you know, you know dominating or getting bigger or growing you're going to be really having to think differently about what you do um and I think that is you know where we see a lot of challenger brands have done really well in the past as well is about thinking about new channels you know new positioning a new perspective on the category and really thinking a bit differently and I think as well um one of the benefits generally of being a smaller brand is you tend to be able to be a bit more agile and a bit more reactive as well you know if you are those big market um, leaders that are coming from those big conglomerates, usually it's very difficult to move quickly. So I think as a smaller brand, try and use that to your advantage that you can try different things, you can fail fast, you can move on um, and you can test things. So I think really think about that. And I think one of the things that I would encourage, um, you know, smaller brands to go away is really thinking about what kind of brand you embody as well. There's a really nice um, walk, did a piece, which is the 10 types of challenger brand. And it's a good way to start categorizing what kind of challenger are you? Are you the challenger brand that um, comes and tells every other brand they're rubbish like BrewDog? Or are you the one that turns the category on its head? Are you telling everyone that um, it doesn't have to be like it used to be? And actually, you're the people's champion and you're doing it for the people. So I think really thinking about how are you challenging the category? And that can really help you lean in to think about what are the channels that I need to do that? What are the kind of um, messaging should I be going out with? And again, it just means that you're acting differently and you're able to challenge, but um, kind of in a kind of framework of ways. And I think, um, you know, again, it's about using what you have to your advantage. And I think smaller brands as well tend to be more in control of their distribution. They tend to be in more control of their product as well. So use that to your advantage that you can deliver um, that superior value, that kind of customer service, that kind of um you know, you know, something that a lot of big brands are really out of control once it gets to the retailer. They have nothing to do with it anymore. So being able to be in control of that complete experience, make sure that you're using that to your advantage. I think um, we're actually seeing some big brands go the other way. And actually, I know Nike did an exercise a while ago where they got rid of a load of retailers because they weren't happy with that experience. So we're seeing how important that is. So use that to an advantage if you're a smaller brand, especially if you're a smaller D2C brand, um, that you can 
really cater to con your consumers' needs and make sure that you're providing that excellent um, experience. And then I think as well, um, again, you know, like I mentioned, if you're a smaller brand, you tend to have the ability to um, move more quickly, test, pivot, take, you know, risks more quickly. I think a phrase, a phrase I haven't heard for a while actually is fail fast, but we used to use it a lot, you know, that you fail fast, move on, learn from it, don't do it again. Um, but, you know, smaller brands have an ability to do that a lot more. So make sure you're taking, um, you know, you're trying things, new technology, new business models. Um, is there the ability to go subscription? Um, you know, is there a new technology that you can use? Um, so think about that. You know, there's brands like Netflix, ChatGPT, iPhones, TikTok. They all grew really, really quickly um, because they started thinking about their business model and the technology differently rather than doing what tends to be a bit tried and tested when you're those big kind of um, market leading brands yeah i think i think the points that you've made there are like really important like you know i put in summary i was like right notice you wrote i put like understand your point of difference and like you know ensure you, you deliver on that like ultimately i think like so many times You'll speak to a company and, and you'll, you'll they'll understand what their point of difference is. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't understand that if you weren't speaking to them. Does that yeah. make sense? Like you wouldn't understand that from the market yeah. message, or you wouldn't understand that from where they're delivering that. And I think it's like being really clear and being able to articulate that effectively is like so so important. Yeah. Do you like we'll come to you on this one as well? Then just to throw it in your direction, like what what do you think on this in terms of like you know understanding that marketing strategy, that point of difference, and executing on that. Um, I mean, I, you know, I think, as we said at the beginning, trying to make it practical and things that people can take away from today. So um, I'm going to go a bit more old school, but thinking, <laughs> you know, just thinking about the basics. And, um, you know, there's a lot to talk about the four P's, and I think that still stands. So product-wise, you know, you talked about a point of difference there. So, you know, firstly, is this, you know, is your product something that people want to buy, but also is, is it distinctive versus the competitors? So, just making sure that you're clearly then communicating those points of distinction sort of along the way, the whole um, consumer journey. Um, price, um, so you've got to make sure that you know, your product's priced correctly. Um, so do you know do enough research um, around that to, to work mm -hmm. out where you're going to pitch that. Um, place, you know, you've got to make sure that your product's available to buy, probably a more obvious one. Um, and then obviously, you know, promotion. So you know, thinking about the role of the brands, the product, you know, the, the whole sort of promotional marketing that you're doing and how you're going to, you know, go out there and kind of activate, um, activate your brand, activate your product. So just really kind of, I suppose, galvanizing like short-term interest and, you know, depending on your goals, there's lots of different kind of tactics and, and, and ways of doing that. So, yeah, I think just start with that and just make sure that you've kind of answered all of those questions um, you know, I think another way to look at it is, um, you know, mental availability, physical availability. So, um, you know, mental availability, that's all about, um, you know, the, the kind of the, the consumers um, got to be mentally available to buy into your brand. Um, and, you know, a way of doing that is to kind of build that up over time. You've got to sort of continuously and repetitively be imprinting the same sort of core brand thoughts in, in the minds of the consumers that you're going after. Um, and then sort of back to physical availability, um, you know, whether that's in store, whether that's online, making sure that, that you know, the people that you're going after can easily access um, your product. Yeah, I think, like, it's that availability piece, isn't it, Jeremy? And I think, like, when you're talking about that mental availability, physical availability, I always think it's, like, almost 
just a bit of an extension of the four Ps, really, you know, when you talk yeah. about it and where that came from. I think, like, you can't overlook, like, sort of that whole piece around, like, the space that you occupy in a consumer's mind and making mm-hmm. sure that you are present at the point of consumption. I think it's, like, a really, a really important piece. Andy, have you got anything to add on this one? Yeah, I'm going to... I'll see me bit, then I'll chuck a little bit of a how we feel about this so i think what's quite interesting is this the concept of kind of like subcategories within categories so you know you might um like you know, it might be beers like drinking beer for example you, know, you might go into the beer or lager category keep this right becca um, and then you might think actually well we need to go for light beers small beers premium beers really really strong beers flavored beers and actually by trying to find little niches within a larger category or a good way to like make new smaller categories that you can then start to dominate and then sometimes i suppose it for it, it's about then almost talking about the subcategory as much as it is a brand and then building that association in, in that way i think it's quite interesting so i think it gets back to that unique point of difference doesn't it as your product like trying to find it and then even trying to build subcategories around that point of difference within a larger category might help you you know start to take ownership of a category on a smaller level before you start to then penetrate and build out because trying to own the whole lot from the off might be quite tricky is it, i think it's a good way for challengers to come in and um, becca that walk thing was pretty impressive in terms of all of the different kinds of challenges right so the other day i was talking about prime and the drink the drink yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah right let's talk about prime because prime interests me because when you think about like I was speaking to somebody else who's in a similar space, similar category, and they're like, well, can you just need a discount prime? Mm. Because, and I was thinking, okay, I, I get that, but really, and it's, I'm really keen to hear, hear people's thoughts on this, but it's kind of almost like confusing the category because I would put, the main people that buy that soft drink are a very younger demographic mm-hmm. that play video games that follow you a load of YouTubers. Yeah. They're buying an energy drink, which is about hydration in sports. Mm-hmm. Now, for me, they've kind of almost taken over a category by bringing in loads of people that never used to be in it. Mm-hmm. And then, like, that's how they've almost gained that, right? Everyone knows mm-hmm. price everywhere you turn. And then now they're starting to put it into, like, UFC, when they've got, like, huge brand share, Loads yep. and loads of money. Then they're becoming the official drink of Arsenal Football Club. And I never mm-hmm. would have associated a drink that children were drinking because it was YouTubers that yep. used their own, like, what would you call it? Like their, their own brand platform in order to build something. So for me, I think that's just quite interesting in terms of how to dominate a really competitive mm-hmm. category by bringing loads of new people into it. Mm. Yeah, too. And experience, I really like Prime as well because I think they were really, really brave. They went down the scarcity route. The reason why everyone went crazy is because you couldn't buy it. Yeah. It wasn't that it actually had physical distribution. It had loads of mental distribution, but it had no physical distribution. And that is, you know, that, that's, I think they have some very good learnings of launching a brand, using yeah. some of those tactics to create noise. And, and I think it kind of, it goes back to what we were talking about as well, the long and the short measurement. That is the kind of thing where you wouldn't have measured that launch the amount of bottles you sold because they probably didn't actually sell that many bottles because it was yeah. in short supply yeah. and everyone was just making loads of money on eBay from it. So, but in terms of what they would have measured would have been their brand and the long of it that yeah. that actually created their, you know, that kind of um, that revenue in the future that they would have been able to utilize. So I think they are a really interesting one in terms of launching. Um, but yeah, I think it's a, a funny space that, 
place. It's kind of, yeah, you get you get into the weird world of like drinks for gamers versus sports versus it's got all these weird crossovers. It's, mm-hmm. yeah, a very interesting one, that. I also think the challenge is going to be around as well, like, yeah, it was a successful launch, but where are we going to be with Prime in 18 months? Mm-hmm. You know, like, what's the follow, what's the follow mm-hmm. position, do you know what I mean? I think that's going to be the interesting thing about, like, yes, it holds it holds a position right now, but it's, like, where they're going to be. And I think that's the thing is, like, is like that scarcity tactic, for example, isn't going to be something that will sustain. Yeah, no, exactly. yeah. Uh, you made a really good point. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's, uh, I think it's it's fascinating, really, to think mm. about. Mm. They've, it's almost like they've built that massive, massive brand share, like in the mental yeah. availability. And then at what point do they think, right, we're going, we're billion pounds, and then they go, right, let's make the physical availability, like open the network, match the mental, yeah. and then it just all comes on a huge scale. But then I would imagine the brand will then start to, yeah. Drop because yeah. the scarcity goes, so it's kind of what's the right time? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's yeah, it'll be interesting when I say it, like I say to see what they do and if they retain that, and if you know they're a one hit wonder or yes. whether. Yeah. I, I think the other interesting thing about that because I don't necessarily think like product wise, it's you know, I've never even tried premium. one. I don't think well, I know. Great. I think have you tried it? I have tried it. Have you? Yes. <laughs> But I think that the point of differentiation there was almost like the way that they did their marketing yeah. as well, like that sort of power of association and, you know, the kind of yeah. the names that sat behind that brand and then how they went out there and kind of activated oh, yeah. it where the bonds were. Oh, totally. That. It comes back to that for a smaller brand, you have to do something differently yeah. because we we know from working with big brands, if you were going to launch a big a product as a big brand, you would go in and you've done your deals with Tesco and you've exactly. done your deals with Sainsbury's yeah. and they would have asked for a certain amount of distribution and we're not going to sell it unless we get eight and coverage in our stores which you go that's not going to build hype is it should we do one one more David just one more please go on then I think banking internet banking (laughs) banking. like you know your first directs your Monzo's your Atom Mm. Bank that almost right and I had again I'm always out talking to people um, I had a conversation with gentleman two weeks ago who was talking around um, the Sunday Times best list I can't remember what it was it was the best finance in the finance section it was about this is your best current account this is the best mortgage this is your best high street bank and actually you know at the point where there did there wasn't a category in the Sunday Times list around the best digital bank Right. And actually, what the likes of your Adam Banks, your first, the disruption of space, the scene, a very younger demographic. And I remember about five years ago, did a start where 32% of millennials will move bank account based on how good their mobile app is. Yep. You know, so again, it's finding somebody, finding a niche within a category of everybody has a bank account, mm-hmm. creating a subcategory digital banking, mm-hmm. building products that appeal to that very specific segment. And then growing your brand in that way to a point where now, if you buy the finance section of the Sunday Times, there is a full top 10 digital banks. They create their own subcategory. But it's a similar thing of like, how do you find a really niche within a huge category Mm. and play to their pain point or their very specific needs and then grow from then? Who knows before Adam Bank's bigger than HSBC probably won't be a while, but it'd be great if it was. Kind of like the Uber approach, you just take something quite traditional. I know, with the bad, yeah. that's, you know, a pain point and negative mm. about a taxi service and then create a different way of doing something. Mm. So 
you know, ultimately all those are about technology and the experience mm. and yeah. now all the kind of traditional banks are starting to And I think Monzo are really interesting because if I think, I don't know if you remember, but do you remember you used to have to be invited by someone? Yes. You couldn't just sign up yourself. You used to be by friend. Yeah. Yeah, so it felt like a secret club. Yeah, it yeah. felt like, do you remember, you could have, like, was it, like, five invites, and you, like, choose who you'd give the invite yeah. to? Yeah, so that's a, the scarcity factor in there. Yeah. It's a yeah. social proofing element, you know, yeah, it's, exactly. like, it's, like, around rival Right, the neon well. card that they still yeah. had. Yeah, really interesting. So, mm-hmm. I want sorry, to on sorry David, I went off piece. No, sorry. No, honestly, it's fine. We've done Prime, we've done Monzo, you've done views on HSBC, which I can't wait for our legal team to resolve after this. It's great, honestly. <laughs> fantastic. But what I wanted to move on is, is like now thinking of those larger brands who've been mm-hmm. the other way on, smaller brands sort of entering into the difficult marketplace against large mm-hmm. brands. But I guess how can companies with a large branch share avoid becoming complacent within their marketing efforts? Like mm-hmm. what are some effective approaches for large brands to remain dominant in the marketplace? Mm-hmm. You know, as you rightly touched on, Becky, you've got loads and loads of experience of sort of bigger brands and, and their sort of desire to stay on top of what mm-hmm. they do and the tactics that they utilise. So do you want to share some of that with us? Yeah, I mean, I would probably first to say, I think it's actually, like you said at the beginning, David, sometimes it's not bad being a challenger. I think it's actually really difficult to be number one in the market. I think you always get like first child syndrome, don't you, that you've got to be the best. You set the precedence that you're the first one doing it. Um, So it can actually be really difficult, I think, to be that leader in the market. Um, And, you know, like you say, it's all about firstly retaining that number one position, but then secondly, pushing it and doing something new and being in- innovative and making sure that no one catches up with you. Um, so I think there's things that, you know, certain, I guess, um, best practice, you might want to call them kind of like hygiene things that big brands can do to make sure that um, they're staying ahead, you know, making sure that, um you know, you're doing that kind of mental and physical availability. I think, you know, mental, you, you know, as a bigger brand, you would usually have much bigger marketing budget. So making sure that you're kind of utilizing them effectively. Um, I believe that we have a, I'm going to plug it again, our, our five podcast series on marketing effectiveness. Um, so making sure you're doing all of those kind of things right. Um, making sure you're thinking about um, your position as well, what's that kind of communication you're making, Um, your physical availability as well, making sure that all of that is, you know, you've got good distribution in bricks and mortar, but also thinking about your journey online as well and working really closely with retailers online if you're not selling D2C, but how can you make sure that experience on Amazon Mm -hmm. is as good as if, you know, you did own it. So making sure you're investing um, in that digital experience Um, making sure that you're using any kind of profits and reinvesting into marketing to grow so making sure you're thinking about what's the future what's the long of it um, and making sure that you're thinking about you know what is my brand going to be like in five years time and those are probably the kind of I guess brilliant basics I'd say in terms of making sure you get that right but I think also what's really interesting about probably that last five years or so is that we've started to see that a lot of those smaller challenger brands that would have, you know, in years gone by would have never, ever been challenging big market leaders are starting to do that now because they've got the means of distribution digitally. 
They've got the means of mental availability by entering into channels like social or search where you don't have to have TV budgets to be able to do it. So actually, you're starting to see those smaller challenging brands are really nipping at the heels of big brands, whereas traditionally they wouldn't have had the means to do that. And I think there's some really interesting categories. If you have a look at skincare and beauty, you know, once upon a time, it was all dominated by L'Oreal. And, you know, that's all you would be able to buy in boots. But now because you can buy things online and because you've got influencers and social media actually you're seeing a lot more of those smaller brands coming into play and actually really taking market share and you know fragmenting the market and meaning that um you know some of those bigger brands are losing share and i think there's some other interesting ones food and drink um there's a lot of interesting ones um around that i think you know, I think especially D to C food and drink, we're seeing a lot of um, interesting, you know, things like Brewdog I mentioned earlier, but a lot more kind of challenger brands coming into that space. I think my favourite one that's always really interesting is mattresses. So do you remember when mattresses used to be the most boring thing in the world? And then you had things like Casper, Simba, Emma come in and really disrupt. Yeah, exactly. Really disrupt that market. And I think probably another one is paint as well. Paint used to just be really, really kind of your big ones, but now you're starting to see those small all the challenger brands come in yeah. and really make noise and really nip at the heels like I remember like five ten years ago you would see the competitors from big brands and you'd be like yep that's just the top three in the category whereas now you start to go right actually those are some smaller ones yeah so I, th- like, I think I was going to say about mm-hmm. click on that one yeah know, again, taking like the frustrations and the category and, yeah. and sort of capitalizing on that so exactly don't put, you know paint over your existing wall yeah it's just nice Exactly. You can move it around so you can see where the light hits it. Perfect. Um, So I think if you're a larger brand, make sure you're looking at those smaller brands. I think a lot of the time, larger brands have a tendency just to look at who's directly behind them. But actually, really, you need to be looking at those ones that are doing something interesting and disrupting the category, even if it is not necessarily challenging your market share at the moment. Um, You don't know that in a few years time, it might not be. Um, And then I think the second thing is, um, you know, it is, you know, as a large brand, you are likely to be able to do a lot more, you know, above the line activity. You know, you might be on TV, you might be out of home. That's brilliant. That is kind of like the core basis of your marketing plan. But then you also need to be testing and learning. So exploring new channels, um, you know, exploring different ways of talking to your audiences. But I think what I would say about that is you cannot measure that the same way as you're measuring a TV advert. If you are working with an influencer, say, that is not going to have the same impact as your TV advert that you're spending millions and millions on. So make sure you're, and I think we talked about this in the long and short, didn't we? Make sure you're measuring the right things for the right activity. So uh, that's what I'd say the big ones, get your basics right, really think about who is doing something a bit different in your category, even if they're not taking a lot of market share at the moment, look at the kind of tactics they're using. Um, and then finally, test and learn. Yeah, we covered that off in the, the budget yeah. um, session as well, and mm. just leaving aside 10% of your budget and learning from, and it could be the challenges, some of those yeah. sort of different tactics that you haven't tried before but just be prepared that some of it might fail and some of it yeah exactly fail fast let's bring it back fail fast yeah bringing it back i think like the point you make you make around like above the line activities like really interesting because i think it is one of the things isn't it that we will often see with smaller brands is that the thing that the the the, the, that focused on conversion-based marketing or Mm. performance-based marketing that it creates like a real focus on that but i think it's like 
if you are a bigger brand and you can sort of dominate the space, like don't don't overlook that because yeah. again, appreciate that like TV isn't seen sometimes now as sexy as influencer activity, but yeah. actually it might be still the thing that drives like loads of eyeballs. Your yeah. brand makes you yeah. aware of what they do. I yeah. think like the, the convergence, and I, and I loved your point on like what some of the competitive brands doing and. and mm. uh, making sure that you're not just focusing on your direct, traditional direct competitors. Yep. And the example I want to use on this is random, and you might not go me on this, so I'm going to throw it in there. Okay, is, I'll just decide. Is, right, Wrexham Football Club. Oh, okay, is that the Ryan Reynolds one? Correct, right? Is the, all I'm saying is the way you're thinking of that is like Ryan Reynolds is bought in that football club, and the way that they've built their brand mm. in a totally different audience, like there's massive, I think, lessons to be learned by yeah. some way bigger brands, some way bigger football clubs, way bigger followings. Mm. You look at the audiences they've got, the social media engagement as a result of that affiliation, association, and, and the quality of production that they're doing on the other side of it through documentaries, like yeah. very, very different to the 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 different view of it, which is like your, your standard Man City documentary or your Arsenal documentary, yeah. etc. It's like again, I just think that's a really interesting way to not just keep your eye on like your traditional competitors, but also look at the other people who are doing yeah. stuff, different stuff in your marketplace. So I think yeah, it, it's one that sprung to my mind just to want to think about. I think a lot of that's played into just making sure that you're reaching the biggest, yeah. you know, like the widest audience possible. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, because you kind of never know when they're going to come into the market yeah. at what point. But not everybody has the budget to do TV. Mm. But, you know, so it's just thinking about the channel choice, thinking about the budget that you have, you know, things like PR. Um, mm. so, you know, it's a great competitor for TV. Yeah, mm-hmm. totally. Agreed. So, Andy, now you've heard my Wrexham view and you're, you're probably thinking, I can't believe you looked at me blankly on that one. I thought you'd have known, but man of the world, you're on mute, which is probably the best right now to stop me. <laughs> but... but um, I don't, I've got a final question we'll come to you, which is around sort of should companies and with a smaller branch invest more heavily in performance marketing compared to traditional mass marketing campaigns? I think like the amount of conversations you and I have had on this is like is massive. I know we, we, we often discuss this, so it'd be really interesting for you to share your views. Yeah, and I think there will, I mean, get a, get a Ryan Reynolds. <laughs> that's the model it's got to like be model I thought that was quite unbelievable um, yeah I think that's, it, it's a really interesting um, one David because I think like you know performance marketing you know the concept of, as you say is like you know by you know you, you pay for when a sale a click a conversion is taking place like you know you, you immediately associate performance marketing at the bottom of the funnel you know capitalizing on demand where there's higher intent therefore you are less more likely to get a return on your investment in in the short term. And you can really prove, like, and it's really easy or easier to measure, you know, and I think that then you can then start proving that you're getting a good return on your investment. So you can kind of understand why people with a, a smaller brand share are looking to make sure that they're getting the right results from every single pound that they spend. I think, but, you know, what we've just then spoke about there, though, is like some huge brands that have done a lot, of just brand marketing, you know, very top of the funnel and had huge success. So I, I kind of, the answer in, in my opinion is you need to do both. And I know that's not the answer you wanted because it was, should we invest more heavily? It's like, well, it depends. It depends if you're in a market where like kind of, you know, there's all, there's a huge demand and um, there's not a brand that is 
kind of almost that much of a preference, which means you're going to have a pretty poor conversion rate when you buy all of that traffic because you're an unknown quantity. You don't have the brand salience. People can't resonate with you. Therefore, you know that, that might harm your conversion rate. But if you invest a little bit in the brand at the top, start building a bit of like, you know, building a bit of a relationship with people, make people know who you are, then you're going to get a better return from your investment in performance marketing. So I don't think I've given you the right answer, David. And it gets back to what Jill said at the very beginning on the whole 60-40. Like, it all depends where you're at. You've got to get into it. As Becca said, start seeing what you're getting back from your investment, move levers, test, learn, and see what your mix needs to be. Yeah, I think can I, can I, I think it's really interesting, right? So when I like I engage with media works like externally ten years ago, right? Yeah. And I think like we we were as an agency like so performance focused. Mm. I think like, that's a part of the evolution that we've gone through as well. Is about like yeah, when we're working with probably smaller businesses at the time, mm. different sort of scale. It's like a bit like that every pound's a prisoner model, you know, around like it's got to be conversion focused. It's got to have a direct return. It's got to. Make sure that every pound that you put in, you maximize, you maximize it out. And I think what you realize quickly, though, and I think it's something we definitely sort of as we've matured as an agency, grown and scaled as an agency, is we we've realized is that like it's about that full funnel coverage piece. Because if there's only so much demand in a marketplace, then ultimately you can only come. That's the basis for competition. Mm-hmm. And actually, it's like. Once you're outside of that and you and you are dominant in that space and you're doing all the best practice tips, et cetera, like it does become a bit of an arms race in the in the sense that like how how aggressive are you prepared to be to eke out that incremental sort of development and performance? And I think yeah. it's then like that's why then you've got to overlay with the above the line, the top of the funnel activity, because then that's about that that really does become your point of difference. Like, I always think of it as your, your short-term wins versus longer-term. It's like short-term, there's loads of things that when we work with clients, it can go in and go, right, short-term, these are the things that you need to focus on. But in essence, that performance, unless the market grows exponentially, is somewhat capped unless you do unless you do the, the bigger sort of mm-hmm. above-the-line brand sort of activity because – you're then trying to generate additional demand and you I see you're buying cheaper traffic and that becomes your point of difference. Mm, yeah, I'd agree with that. It's kind of like I say there's just a limit to that demand. Yeah, that's yeah. just a way of increasing that. But also just again back to sort of how people behave. And you know, I think particularly when you're when you're buying brands, you could do that at any point. So you kind of mm. gotta go broader with your reach. Yeah. Um and, and annoyingly be there all the time because you never know at what point they're going to be coming into the category so it is it is the answer is both <laughs> from my side yeah. I think as well as like if you are in a very, very, I keep saying the word niche today, niche and category. And um, if you're on a very, very niche category, whoa, in the same sentence. Um, and then actually, you know, you, you are position one, you've got a really good, you know, bottom of the funnel paid, paid campaign going where you're capitalizing on you know, good impression share. Then at, at what point do you then start having to broaden out the category and bring new mm. people in with the brand campaign so it's not just necessarily the brand but it's raising awareness of a product that solves a particular problem yeah, yeah. arguably what you're doing is yeah tell us if i'm wrong jill but at that point you know you're kind of you're feeding everybody then because you're bringing new people into the category yeah, yeah. that's the risk isn't it yeah, now i want a pizza oven because i've just seen the most awesome brand campaign around mm. having fun with the family in summer around a pizza oven but yeah i bet then be there to mop up that 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, Again, I think that's a really important point, isn't it, around around like the consumer decision-making process. And I'm always really conscious of we talk about funnels, like we always talk about funnels, like everyone in marketing talks about funnels. Mm-hmm. But, it, but in essence, I do think like we know that through research and through data that actually it starts with it starts with um, a, a trigger, if you like, yeah. and, and it ends with an action. But yeah. actually what, at what point you come into a funnel or at what point you're engaging. And what, I actually say it's a bit more like snakes and ladders than it is a yeah. funnel. You know, it's like people sit in markets for a while when, like, in some areas, I'm really decisive. Like, if I've got a sort of Mother's Day present out for my wife and my children, like, I'm very decisive. I'm in there. It's, it's not something that I'm re- I haven't got the time to research and look at all the best options. I'm in there, right, I want this. This is what I'm getting, right. I've got, you know, you're going with sort of, criteria that, that mm-hmm. if it ticks all those boxes great other products that were, we obviously or brands that we work with or, or sort of categories that we're focused on is like there is that longer term is that whole research piece and you know what, what like just because you're at the awareness stage like and then you enter into the conversion stage doesn't ultimately mean that you won't dip back into the awareness stage where you might become aware of other brands and engage mm-hmm. people so i think it's like we've got to understand like how that works and the, the points of the different communication points and how you've got to drag the customer, if you like, on that journey with you as a brand. And I think, David, I think as we kind of, as digital becomes more and more accessible without going too far down a different path and like actually, you know, might have, in a, even in a short buying journey, there can be, as daft as it sounds like, in the hundreds of touch points because yeah. of how accessible brands, content, social proof, reviews like because it's so accessible like buying journeys even sometimes aren't getting longer but they're getting more complex and more like short spurts so i remember yeah. I did, we spoke about this last time when i came into a presentation with, with, with yourself it's like the number of touch points right across buying a holiday 450 a car 900 a property a thousand so that messy middle right mm-hmm. is super important to kind of Build, build your, build your brand there by providing help, providing advice, giving social proof. Like I think it's, it's really important. So I haven't answered your question there. <laughs> no, but I think we, we, you have, and you haven't. I think the answer, the answer on this is, is you've got to sort of sit on the fence. Like my take will be, is if you've got a fixed budget, and you're all about conversions. Is what I do is spend at the bottom of the funnel really aggressively, mm-hmm. like because I think that's, it, it, that's. Again, if that's the culture within your business as well, yeah. like you've got to hit it. I, you know, I used the analogy previously. Everyone talks about philosophy and strategy until like someone slaps you in the face, right? It's like the old Mike Tyson quote. It's like, like everybody's got a plan out of not be beat by Mike Tyson, and then he puts you in the face, and then like nobody's got a plan anymore. And I think like it's a bit like it's a bit like that. Do you know what I mean here where it, it, it's almost like it's like if that's the environment you're operating in, it's like dominate the bottom. The quick wins are there, the tools are there, like there's ways and means you can do things, you know, whether you're focusing on paid, whether your website needs to get better. Like the marginal improvements you can make on conversion rate optimization on your website will be the biggest, most powerful single changes you can make. Not not educating people about whatever, do you know what I mean? Somewhere over here. However, if you've got the opportunity, the answer is 
surely test and learn, like understand the full funnel. Be thinking about that whole piece around, right, owning across all of those touch points. What does that mean? It's about like engaging with new audiences because you can't rely on the people that are in there all the time. So keeping returning, it's about, for me, it is almost a sit on the fence moment, but that comes with conditions. Do you know yeah. I mean? understand the conditions, the context. 100%. Neil Jill said at the very beginning, but you know, we're talking about marketing effectiveness, and it all it all boils down to a good strategy, and it all boils down to your own specific strategy based on who you are, what you're trying to achieve, the marketing category that you're trying to disrupt, the you know your product and its USPs and its you know its specific things that can help you demonstrate in a creative way. So I think you know this whole thing is like. It's having a it's having a plan, isn't it? It's having a strategy that's very much tailored to you and your own particular problems and or like the problems you're trying to solve with your product or start with a good strategy. Yeah. I think like, you know, I was reading something the weekend about like feedback and the, the, the quote was like, good feedback requires context. You know, it's like however you want to be fed back, it's like you require that context because you want to understand so what did that mean in a particular mm-hmm. context and why was that important? It's almost like the finishing point I'd like to finish on is almost like marketing strategy requires context. Mm-hmm. It's like we can't get up here and say it's like, oh yeah, it's it's this and it's that. And we did this when we did the long and short session, didn't we, Joe? Yeah. Looking at like you can't go in and go, oh, it's a 60-40 or it's an 80-20 split, and this is how you do it. It's like, what's the context in which you're operating? And there's a multitude mm-hmm. of factors. And I think, look, we also I think you mentioned Becca about us doing ourselves out of a job. We're actually now finishing by like putting ourselves back into a job, Jeremy, yeah. which is great. It's like it is complex at all. And it's and it is complex and it is complicated. Yeah. But I think like what we've covered hopefully over these five weeks is is steps that you can take and key considerations that you should be thinking about along the way, which I think is re- is really, really important. Mm. I've made some I've made some notes. So I always finish with sort of five key takeaways. So I think like one for me would be no business starts with parity. It sort of ties in with the whole context piece. It's like it's not the same for everybody. It's not an equal race. It's often a staggered start. So just be aware of that because like and, and around that, like the building of the brand is an important piece. And brands that have spent a lot of time, energy, effort over years, like have that compounded impact. But it doesn't mean that you can't compete and there isn't a basis for competition. I think number two would be um, around your point. Um, Becca was around like consider excess share of voice as a key measure, but also I think we talked about then pooling other resources that are out there. You know, we talked about using some digital tools as well, whether it be Keyword Planner, whether it be sort of the in-platform insights that you can get to understand like who are your competitors and what are they doing and that whole reverse engineering piece that we talked about. Yeah. I think like... You can, uh, third would be, you can compete if you're a smaller business, but you've got to understand your point of difference and ensure you deliver that difference at every aspect, through every aspect of your proposition and at every customer touch point. Like what you've got to be is, is you've got to be more compact, you've got to be more consistent, you've got to be more dynamic and nimble and use that as a, as a strength, not, not a weakness. I think four was for larger brands, don't rest on your laurels, like don't rely on like, just focusing on traditional competition. Uh, think about what emerging subcategories mean for you. I think we talked about this with the Monzo Bank example and the fact that digital banking didn't exist as a category. And now, like HSBC would love to be top of that sort of digital banking category out there. And they're probably now thinking about, right, how do we dominate that? Because it is going to be something that is, is of increasing importance. So 
again, like, you know, that was a key takeaway for me. And then finally, like, you know, don't dismiss performance. Performance matters, like, for all of us, you know, like, it, it ultimately does have to lead to a conversion or an action, whatever those were set out at the start, whether you're a membership-based company who wants to drive subscribers, whatever. Like, the goal can be very different. But I think, like, don't forget the role that a full funnel has in that coverage. Like, don't just rely on what is the one thing that we can do that's going to get us that goal because actually what you'll find is is the multiplier effect of other activity further up the funnel will have a significant impact on what you're doing. <coughs> so hopefully that has summarised nicely that session and also brings us to the end of this five-part series. It's been the first like functional parted series that we've done uh, and we've got more of this to come. So yeah, I'd just like to thank sort of the panellists today, Becca, Jill and Andy for their contributions and thank you for everybody who's, who's listened this week but also has listened over previous weeks, both live but also on catch-up. So thank you very much. We'll be back at the same time um, in, in the coming weeks. So, yeah, thank you. We'll look forward to seeing you again soon. Cheers, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.